Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Classes are back. Math, English, phys ed, all the usual stuff. But for some students, something critical is missing. Lessons about climate change, the impact of fossil fuels, the push to transition workers out of the oil patch, and the promise of renewable energy. And all these really complex issues are never really discussed in any depth in schools. Mostly it's one-time mention, maybe it's one unit, you learn it and then you move on. So some have educated themselves and they're demanding more. This is my future, this is my earth, and now I know the severity of it. They're galvanized by the belief young people can make a difference if teachers take the time to show all students how. Our climate education really needs to be one that not just explains the issue thoroughly, but also inspires hope within young generations. Their idea of a passing grade for climate change education? Each and every member of our generation will see themselves as part of the solution. This week, we push aside the traditional textbooks to study a new way for youth to learn about the climate crisis by hearing from students and educators. Hi, my name is Ellen Field. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Lakehead University in Orillia. Field has been investigating how climate change is taught in each province. That research will be published soon. But she admits she was surprised to discover the majority of climate change courses are optional, not mandatory. Climate change education is not comprehensively integrated throughout subjects or grades. Some provinces may have a lot in their mandatory science. Others will have a lot in social studies. But there's very little consistency from province to province. The other piece we found is that the overall focus is on understanding mostly the climate science and less so on climate solutions or on taking climate actions within schools. And Fields Research suggests almost half of students from grades 7 to 12 believe climate change is happening and think it's caused by humans, but they don't believe anything can be done to solve it. So this is concerning when considering how having this mindset may affect youth in terms of how they frame their future quality of life, opportunities, or possibilities. Students need to feel that they can contribute. And currently, with our system that seems to have a lot of gaps and inconsistencies, students have a lot of dissonance between what they see in the news and then what they experience in their science classroom. So Field is urging change. There is a, a need for a review of curriculum with a climate change lens and really looking at the multiple dimensions of climate change, not just science. She's talking English, math, social studies, history. Field says it all needs to be mandatory. And she has an assignment for ministries of education too. Ministries of education can develop consultation mechanisms to include youth as well as um, indigenous and traditional knowledge keepers on what these curricula will look like. Young people will be living with the decisions that adults make in the next five years for the rest of their lives. 
And so they should at least have a seat at the table where these decisions get made around curriculum policy, about what their future looks like. Some students aren't waiting to be invited to sit at the table, and I have two of them with me here now. Sophia B. is in grade 12 at Lord Bing Secondary in Vancouver. She's involved in a group called Climate Education Reform BC. Aishwarya Batur is in grade 11 at Bluevale Collegiate in Waterloo. She's the project coordinator for a new campaign called Teach the Teacher. Hello. 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 Um, first, I want to hear about your experiences when it comes to learning about climate change in school. Aishwarya, let's start with you. How has climate change been taught in your classes so far? So I think the first time I ever heard anything related to the environment was in elementary school, where, you know, they touched on things like, don't litter, um, save our earth, just little slogans here and there, which definitely left an impact on me. And I'm grateful that I had those experiences. But the first time that I ever heard about the term global warming was in a grade seven class um, during middle school. And at the time I was living in Saudi Arabia, so I wasn't living in Canada. And so we talked about what global warming was. They just explained the science and they told us that in order to prevent it or rather in order to stop it, what you need to do is reuse, reduce and recycle the three R's and that was it. We were never taught about how 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions are comes from um, fossil fuel companies. We were never taught about in, the intersectionalities, nothing. It was just, you know, simple um, individual tasks that we can do, which, which are great, but that's not enough. And in high school in Canada, I, in grade nine, we touched on ecosystems. There was a chapter in science class, I believe. But in grade 10, we were supposed to have a climate change unit in class, but we were only able to do two days of climate change education in science class, which resulted in literally us learning about climate graphs and once again, the science behind climate change and nothing else. All right, Sophia, tell me, what has your experience been like? It is actually quite similar. In terms of elementary school, I think everyone had a general understanding of climate change, but nothing really stood out to me. I didn't consider myself as really a climate activist or climate organizer. Even going into high school, again, we learned a bit about the science. Uh, we did one research project on biodiversity and food waste and those issues. But I think overall, I can't ever recall ever talking about more systemic things such as climate policy, um, structural issues, um, how they tied into causing climate change. And especially, we never really got into the more controversial aspects, which I see as really central to the fight for climate change. Things like, so what are we going to do about fossil fuels and industrial agriculture? Um, and how are we going to transition workers? And all these really complex issues are never really discussed in any depth in schools. Mostly it's one time mention, maybe it's one unit, you learn it and then you move on. But there's never really much follow-up. And so it sort of, I think for most people, just fades away in the memory. It's just something that was mentioned, but the true importance of it isn't really highlighted because it is addressed inconsistently and without a real focus on actual solutions and what we can all do as a collective 
in order to create change beyond just recycling more. So, Sophia, you're actually sort of anticipating my next question, which is how do you think climate change should be taught in schools? And, Sophia, we'll start with you. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, it needs to be mentioned regularly. So not just as, you know, one unit that you get over it, you you're finished it, then you check off the box and move on to other topics. I think because um, there's really always current issues coming up, like new reports um, and maybe new updates in Parliament and so on. I think even just bringing those sorts of updates to the classroom and having a bit of discussion around that can remind people that we are in, in an emergency um, and that it is something that should be top of mind and relevant to everyone all the time. I also think, in general, shifting the focus away from the traditional emphasis on saving water, saving energy, towards talking about climate movements and policy change, and really showing people what they can achieve when they're in a group actually mobilizing around issues. Okay, Ashwarya, what about you? Well, first of all, I believe that our climate education really needs to be one that not just um, explains the issue thoroughly, but also inspires hope within young generations. Because I feel like a reason that um, a lot of teachers or, you know, um, educators may be hesitant to just put out the severity of the climate crisis as it is, is because of the climate anxiety that it causes with uh, within students, or maybe just how we're kind of being like, oh yeah, doomsday is gonna come one day, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of what we're putting out there. But instead of phrasing it in such a way, we can phrase it by saying, hey, there are so many movements out there that are trying to advocate for a better future and they are really creating change and when we focus on those voices when we focus on those movements i promise you so many children at schools will be so inspired like if i was taught that at school i would have been a climate activist way earlier from just i guess i started out in high school but i would have like from elementary school onwards i would have been advocating because this is my future this is my earth and now i know the severity of it but i also know that there are beautiful um solutions to this problem where scientists and activists alike are working towards paper or plastic oh i forgot my own bags um plastic no wait paper hang on which one's better I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we're talking to both of you because you're both trying to change the curriculum on climate change. Ashwarya, let's stick with you. You're working on something called Teach the Teacher. Can you tell me how it works? Yes, for sure. So Teach the Teacher is a global campaign. And basically what we're trying to do is bring light um, on the status of climate education around the world, as well as the training that teachers receive um, in order to talk about climate change. What we're trying to do is we're getting students in hopefully over 15 countries to go into their own schools and present a presentation and start a 
holistic and open-ended conversation about our climate, climate justice, eco-anxiety, how to deal with it, etc. And not only will we be giving a talk about climate change, but we'll also be talking to them about how to implement climate education within subjects that normally don't talk about climate. Like, for example, economics or business. There's so much we can include there. We can talk about just transitions towards renewable energy and what that would look like for countries across the world and not just Canada, right? Or we could talk about um, workers who are currently working in fossil fuel companies and how their jobs would transition over to um, green energy companies. So there's so much to go off of here. And we're really hoping that this campaign is a success. How do you think teachers are going to respond to being taught by their students? Um, I think I think the campaign's title is a bit misleading. Not gonna oh, okay. lie, um, because <laughs> because we're not here to say we're any better than you, right? Or that we're trying to teach you. Um, the campaign's title is rather just catchy, <laughs> but <laughs> what we're trying to do here is we're trying to start this open-ended discussion with teachers. Yes, there will be a presentation, but there will be discussions. There will be an opportunity for students to let teachers know what they actually want to see within their classrooms, right? And that's what teachers want. I think, well, at least I think so. (laughs) I do think that, at least in my personal experience, when I've talked to teachers, they always send us survey forms, right? They want to know what we're expecting from this course. And we're willingly coming there and telling them, I want to see this. I want to see teachers, educators talking about my future. I want to see them talking about the lives of millions of people currently who are being so affected by climate change. And they're marginalized people who who don't um, affect the global greenhouse gas emissions as other countries or other groups of people do. So, and I think another thing is that we do acknowledge that teachers and educators try their best, right? It's not, everything's not up to them to decide what to teach in their classrooms. They need resources. They need the cooperation of governments. They need the cooperations of ministries of education and They need all of these people to come together and help them in order to put this out. But our campaign intends to at least start somewhere, and we're starting with teachers. And you've given me a perfect segue to my next question for Sophia, because, Sophia, you have been reaching out to government, to the provincial government in BC, the Minister of Education. What is your group, Climate Education Reform BC, asking for? Yeah, so our campaign, it revolves around six needs, which we've outlined um, in depth on our website. It's a nine-page document that we sort of put together over the course of a few months. But essentially, I can summarize the six main things we're asking for, which we call our needs. And the first one is a public declaration of a climate emergency from the BC Ministry of Education. So this would involve them publicly committing to treating it as a top priority, including a top budget priority. Um, The second need is about creating committees to initiate the work so that we know that there are staff dedicated to climate education specifically and the various aspects of education reform, and that these are consistently meeting and consistently um, hammering out timelines and so on. But need two does have a sub point, which is about 
bringing in a community consultation committee. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be an explicit committee, but the idea there is that within the structure of the reform process, we really need community voices. So it's not just ministry staff maybe putting together something that they think would best meet community needs and student needs, but rather bringing in the voices of uh, scientists, parents, students, educators, um, as well as activists and other diverse perspectives in order to shape, first of all, what the curriculum could look like, what implementation could look like, um, and every aspect of the process, which ties in with need number three, which is about specifically a youth committee. Since youth are the primary stakeholders, in a sense, of the education system, but also a voice that has not been given a seat at the table when making decisions about what our education system looks like. Need number four is more about the need to change the curriculum. We did outline a few points about what we think the education system could look like, but we also recognize that there needs to be more discussion. There needs to be a wider pool of people in terms of actually deciding what goes into the curriculum. Need number five is sort of what um, was being talked about before, but setting up teacher support and resources, since that is really a big aspect of why climate education isn't being taught. Um, and finally, Dean number six, we decided that it was also very important to include, is about aligning infrastructure, uh, school infrastructure with net zero goals. I mean, it isn't explicitly education related, but it is very much a show of consistency with the ministry declaring the emergency, recognizing the need to implement education, and then aligning that with what the school is actually doing in terms of its operations. Now, so that's a quick rundown. Yeah, Sophia, you've actually managed to score a meeting with the Minister of Education that's coming up uh, later this year. Um, how optimistic are you that you're actually going to be able to get these changes put in place? I think overall, that first meeting, not a lot, I don't think, is going to happen. But what we are really going to try to push for is to set up um, that initial structure. So first of all, we will be asking that for a follow-up meeting after we bring up all our needs and discuss a little bit about implementation and so on. But then we will be pushing for that follow-up meeting as well as really pushing for setting up the committees as the first step. Because the idea is once we have at least the structure in place and once we have community representation actually integrated into the core of the um, education process and ministry work, that's going to hopefully pave the way to the much larger needs of the campaign. I have a question for both of you now. I'm, and Aishwari, we can start with you again. Tell me what you think is at stake if nothing changes, if all your work doesn't result in any change. Okay, that's a very heavy question. And personally, I think everything is at stake. I know that may sound dramatic, but considering the point where we're at right now, where, you know, the impacts of climate change are being seen everywhere across the world from wildfires happening in Ontario itself to cyclones that are happening in South Asia to um, indigenous peoples being displaced out of their homes and um, traditional territory. The impacts of climate change are very vast and so to think that young children, to think that these 
youth, these people who will be leading all these countries one day are not going to be educated about what is actually happening to them is horrific. And so I think without climate education, we won't be able to progress further than where we already have. Um, Because with climate education, we create citizens who are knowledgeable, we create people who are informed, right? And so, like, for example, let's take the instance of a citizen, we, we educate people because we want them to be informed, right? We want them to know um, the decisions that they're making in their everyday lives. Um, why do we go to school? Because we learn, right? It helps us make all these decisions. And Once we grow older, our decision-making will be very different from the adults who are making decisions as of right now, because our decision-making will be every step in the way impacted by climate change and by what's happening to our environment with climate change and what's happening to our people with climate change. And so in order for us to make informed decisions, we need that climate education. We need to know what can we do next. And in order for people to advocate for a better future, you need to be educated, right? As long as we progress, I believe that there's a better world. And I really hope we do. And Sophia, what what do you say to that? What's at stake if nothing changes when it comes to climate change education? I do think one of the biggest reasons we are still where we are, meaning not really seeing meaningful climate action at the scale we need, is because of, first of all, a large portion of the public, although they might be concerned about it, they may not connect deeply enough with it. And I also think it is a matter of lacking climate literacy and maybe not really seen all the complex layers of all these policy proposals um, and so forth. So what climate education is really designed to do is to ensure that at the very least, our generation will see um, each and every member of our generation will see themselves as part of the solution and connect with it on that deeper level and be willing to really look at policies, think about solutions um, and come together and work together in order to shape climate solutions, because it really is something that needs everyone engaged and involved. Aishwarya, Sophia, I have to say I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Aishwarya Batur is in grade 11 at Bluevale Collegiate in Waterloo. She's hoping the Teach the Teacher program can be delivered later this fall. Sophia B. is in grade 12 at Lord Bing Secondary in Vancouver, and her group, Climate Education Reform BC, is set to meet with the Minister of Education in October. We would love to hear from you about this. Are you a student or a teacher? What do you think of how climate change is being taught right now? Email us, earth at cbc.ca, and you can also tweet us at cbcwhatonearth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. just heard Aishwarya and Sophia talk about the importance of understanding how climate change affects some, like Indigenous peoples, more than others. 
The Toronto District School Board, the biggest in the country, has taken on that idea and taken it even further. That means knowledge woman. My name is Tanya Sank. I am Métis, Cree, and Soto, known as the Three Sister Nations People of the Buffalo, as was taught to me by Elder Maria Campbell. I am the System Superintendent for Indigenous Education with the Toronto District School Board through the Urban Indigenous Education Centre and also the Superintendent for Kapapa Machque Wondering Spirit School, a K-12 Indigenous-focused school within the Toronto District School Board. Sank says the work the centre does helps students understand the world around them in a different and deeper sense, including how environmental sustainability and stewardship guide First Nations' understanding of how to care for the environment. Indigenous land-based education is one of the key principles of Indigenous education and Indigenous languages. There's an opportunity that we have right now through the Toronto District School Board that uh, one of the outdoor education centres will be the focus of an Indigenous land-based outdoor education program where students from all across the Toronto District School Board, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, have an opportunity to learn from Indigenous perspectives, to learn from Indigenous land-based programming. And for Indigenous students, that this is very important when we address uh, mental health and well-being, particularly with the pandemic. Having an opportunity to be out on the land and to have the Indigenous principles of well-being that uh, bring together the aspects of self, which include the intellectual, the emotional, the spiritual, and the physical together out on the land and learn from elders. So we're incredibly excited. Sank is also helping to revise parts of the curriculum. One example is teaching just how Indigenous knowledge and Western science can work together, known as two-eyed seeing. In one of the courses, there's a question and it says, how can the two-eyed seeing framework and seven generations teachings help improve environmental and other policies? Now that phrase, seven generations teaching, reinforces the view that decisions taken today should support and sustain generations into the future. Students are also asked how climate change continues to affect Indigenous people, not just in Canada, but around the world. And how have Indigenous leaders responded? What strategies are Indigenous youth using to share ideas about how to address the consequences of climate change? These are some of the questions that are discussed in classrooms. Sank has some advice for other educators who want to welcome Indigenous-based climate change learning into their classrooms. Certainly the key to that is working very closely with their Indigenous advisory councils in schools, uh, creating uh, an elders council so that you have opportunities to work with and learn from Indigenous peoples um, through various uh, protocols instead of learning about And it really needs to be based on developing these uh, relationships that are based on trust and reciprocity and holding Indigenous knowledge up for its brilliance and its joy. Tanya Sank is the System Superintendent for Indigenous Education with the Toronto District School Board. Thanks this week to associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. 
Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. And a quick note about our colleague Joan Melanson. She hangs up her headphones this month. Joan's career spans 44 years at CBC, including helping us get What on Earth to Air. We're grateful, and we'll miss you, Joan. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.